0: Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of the Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm joined by fly fishing author, speaker, and fly tyer, Skip Morris. Just a few days ago, Stackpole released the 30th anniversary edition of Fly Tying Made Clear and Simple. It's a classic and the first tying book I ever purchased. Skip and I take a deep dive into his fishing and writing journey and the story behind Clear and Simple. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. But before we get to the interview... Just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a rating and review in the podcatcher of your choice. It really helps us out. And a shout out to this episode sponsor. This episode sponsored by our friends at Norvice. Their motto is, tie better flies faster, and they produce the only vice that truly spins. To see for yourself, if you're in the Boston area on April 22nd, 23rd, or 24th, Stop by the Norvice booth at the Fly Fishing Show in Marlborough. It's their last show of the season, and all the event details are on the events page at www.nor-vice.com. Now, on to the interview. Well, Skip, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to our conversation tonight, and we have a tradition on the Articulate Fly. We always ask our guests to share their earliest fishing memory.
1: Oh, boy. Well... I'll tell you this, I, uh, my father was as, as uh, fanatical about boats as, as I became pretty young about fishing, and uh, so I ended up around the water a lot, and plus I, I grew up on a, a place that became very swanky after we moved there, Mercer Island in Washington State, and so I could walk, when I got old enough to walk a couple of miles, I could walk to the water and fish. So it goes way back, but you know, the earliest I remember actually catching a fish, actually remember catching one, was, I believe it was Knott's Berry Farm, and I was about six or five or four or something like that, and there were a bunch of, I think, bluegills in a pond or a tub or something, you could pay a dollar and catch a bluegill, and and I caught one, and I just went crazy, and I said, oh, my God, can we just stay here all day, you know, Mom but there's lots of things to see, and so, all right, you know, I'll go, but... Uh, I remember even then having that, just that fever, you know, and I, I I think I caught it literally on a cane pole (laughs) with a worm or a fish egg or a piece of ham or something, whatever they stuck on there with a bobber. And, and, uh, but I just, I just went nuts and I thought that was amazing.
0: Yeah. That's pretty similar to some of my early fishing experiences too, Skip. When did you come to the dark side of fly fishing?
1: (laughs) Well, um, I've used that term, the dark side, a lot in fly fishing, and usually I'm talking about nymphs and full sinking lines and things that creep people out, but uh, you mean just fly fishing in general, I assume?
0: Exactly.
1: You know, I I really, and, and of course, I'm, you got to remember, I'm older than most of your listeners, I suspect. I, I betcha. Uh, I'm 70, and I'll be 71 pretty soon, so I go way back, but when I was a, quite young, I started seeing shows like The American Sportsman and this really quirky one called Gadabout Gaddis, the flying fisherman. And uh I just I you know, I already loved fishing and then I saw that stuff and I saw fly fishing and I went, Ooh, amazing. So uh I eventually, you know, once I matured with uh I started tying flies, that would have been about age ten or eleven. And then it took me a couple of years to get up the gumption to actually put a fly, one of the flies I like tied, in front of a fish. I just, I don't know what freaked me out about it, but I finally did on one of my little creeks, and I must have been 12 or 13 by then, and uh, that was it. <laughs> I didn't just immediately give up other kinds of fishing, because back then, back in the, when was that have been? Gee, early 60s, I guess. Um, back then, fishermen were fishermen to a large degree. I mean, even my favorite fly fishing literary writer in the world, Roderick A. Brown, fished sometimes with uh, all kinds of stuff, including a uh, casting rod, and uh, so it was kind of expected that you didn't just limit yourself to one thing, for the most part. I mean, most fishermen looked at it that way, and so I didn't for a long, a long time, but I did mostly fly fish, and then sometime in my early 20s, I would say, I just pretty much decided, I don't really want to fish other ways. I didn't have any resentment against them i don't have anything against them now but uh i just didn't want to just that's the only way i wanted to catch a fish
0: yeah it's funny you say that for me i was just afraid i was going to mess up my casting so i put all my spinning rides
1: away oh really <laughs> yeah it is a completely different concept that's i mean that's the first thing when i teach you know when i write about casting i've, I've written a book for beginners on on fly fishing for example uh One of the first things I explain is that if you already spin fish, you are casting the weight of the lure and it's towing out the line behind it, streaming that line behind it. But when you fly cast, you cast the weight of the line and it carries the the lure or fly out behind it and, you know, completely different, uh, mechanics. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And so, you know, um, there's been a little bit of water under the bridge since then. So who are some of the folks that have mentored you on your fly fishing journey?
1: Um, Well, I can tell you who my heroes were. That's pretty easy. Uh, Roderick H. Brown, in many ways, but especially uh, as a literary voice. And that would be easy. Let's see. uh, Joe Brooks, for sure. Uh, I've got one of his books, but I just kind of followed him and read his articles in the magazines like Field and Stream. And who else? There was a guy around Seattle. I kept taking his book out of the library. um, Enos Bradner. And he was, I think he fished other ways than fly fishing, but he was mostly about fly fishing. And, and I liked it because it was local. It was about the area that I was living in, uh, western Washington and Washington in general. And I think he talked about British Columbia, but Enos Bradner. And, and then I, back then I read actually just about everything I'd get my hands on once I got going. I Once I went crazy about the age of, as I say, 11, probably 12, maybe 13, I just, you know, I started... Uh, taking every book out of our library on Mercer Island that was about fly fishing. And we must have had, the guy who ran the fly fishing, or ran the, the what am I trying to say, the, who selected the books, uh, I suspect was a fly fisher because there was a pretty good-sized section. And then when I got old enough to drive, I started driving into the Seattle Library, which is just a city that was even then, and, and uh, they had tons of books. They even had some old, I mean, I think probably 18 books in the 1800s by Frederick Halford. I was able to take those home, which is amazing, the actual books, not reproductions. And they had those old color plates where somebody actually sat there on each book and painted them in. The the outline was printed, and then they painted them in. And I got to take those home for a while, and the next day I went in there, and they said, no, you can only look at them here, and you have to sign in. And then I did that a couple times, and they said, no, you can't get anywhere near them. (laughs) Maybe because I was still a kid, I don't know, but I got to take those home. So I was reading everything i could get my hands on. I was reading Halford, I was reading LaBrench and uh, Hewitt, and uh, oh, back then it was, uh, I'm trying to think, Charles Fox and that whole gang, um, let's see.
0: uh, Yeah, Vince Marinero probably.
1: I was just about to say, in the ring of the rise, yeah, and a modern dry fly coat, Vince Marnero, and others I can't even think of. So actually, once you open that can of worms, I mean, <laughs> I read everything I get my mitts on.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. And it's kind of interesting, too, um, that you started tying flies before you really started fly fishing. You know, most people kind of do it the other way around. Uh, what attracted you to fly tying before you were actually fishing?
1: Well, I just thought that once I discovered it, again at quite a young age I I just thought it was kind of amazing and I wanted to try it and so um, I believe it was for my birthday or Christmas I wanted one of these little fly tying kits that you saw in the sporting goods stores various places and they got me one and I just went crazy and I gotta say though oh my god I don't know how I tied anything Um, those vices were stamped out of what my dad used to call pot metal it's this real soft stuff it's no pot I ever saw is made out of metal and soft. And they were literally stamped out, and each time you tighten it down on the hook, it would shave off a little sliver of the metal. So every single time you try to fly, it would get looser. There was no way to tighten it, and the furnace was just god awful. I'd have been a lot better off with a bench vise, but uh, I, that's how I learned to tie. They had some really horrible materials and some kind of hooks that I don't know where they got those. But uh, I tied a bunch of flies, and then I started going to the one fly shop in Washington. And let's see, I think actually I would start ordering stuff online. Or not online. No, what am I saying? I started ordering stuff through the mail, because back then we had the herders catalog, and uh, that went away a long time ago. But they had all kinds of stuff in there for fly tires.
0: Yeah, very neat. Do you remember the first pattern you tied on your vice?
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't.
0: Fair, I fair, don't. fair enough. What do you tie on today?
1: Um, I, I have an HMH that I tie on mostly. Uh, it's been a great little vice. I've actually got a couple of them. I'm I'm kind of on the pro staff loosely. So, you know, I always, I always say those things because I don't want people thinking that I'm trying to hide that fact, but, uh, it's been a great little vice for me. Easy to travel with. And I use it at the shows and things in here when I tie at home.
0: Yeah. Very neat. Yeah. It's funny. You kind of end up collecting them. You know what I mean?
1: (laughs) I've got about, yeah, I probably got eight or 10.
0: Uh, Very neat. And so, you know, when did you get the writing bug?
1: You know, I've I've had that all along, but it never—the virus was there, but it (laughs) never—virus would be a bad word to pick at this time. Let's just say there was a latent thing, for the most part, going on. Um, From the time I was a a little kid, I loved to read really good fiction. I mean, the great stuff, you know, Hemingway, Faulkner— and uh, I didn't read it a lot, but it went, but I loved reading it, and I did read it, and I went for a, an English degree in, at a university, and I got it. And uh but I didn't really work hard at writing. I have worked at writing ever since my first article came back. It came out back in about 1984 in a magazine. That's when I kind of got half serious about writing. But you know, honestly, it's it's such a monster. I mean, writing is is like it's like any of the arts. It's like music or painting or. It's like fly fishing. You just you, are never gonna, you're never going to explore it all or even come close to mastering it all. So you just do the best you can. And about, I, I tried hard to be, be to write well, and write better than well, for I don't know how many years. Let's see. My first my first book came out in '89. I was working at my writing then, and then about eight years ago. I quit music. I'd been a professional musician that whole time. And uh, I just put the guitars away and decided I was just going to devote all that time to writing and, and more. And just see, you know, how can I push my writing up uh, one notch after another? And what, what is it that Hemingway did that, I, that I'm not doing? And it's been an amazing journey. So I guess I, I got semi-serious about writing way back in 89 um, but I got dead serious about it about eight years ago.
0: Got it, and I know you've mentioned Hemingway. Who are some other writers and authors that you like to follow?
1: Um, my favorites, and in fact, uh, this gives me a great opportunity to mention that I that I'm, this Saturday I'm going to teach another uh, writing Zoom on writing online Zoom writing class. I've been doing that called becoming a fly fishing writer, and in that. I do mention, uh, quite often I use quotes from my favorite writers, so it's easy to think of who they are. But I love a Southern writer, a Louisiana writer named Tim Gattro. Love him, Writer of fiction. Uh, Peg Brown, I've already mentioned. Uh, let's see. Um, ha Jin, who is a Chinese-American writer, who's kind <laughs> of amazing. Uh, after that, it's uh, just Kind of a mishmash. I mean, there's there's one writer who hasn't written a whole lot, but I, I love his essays. Um, and his name is Gordon Grice. Um, there are some other great essay writers. Um, some of them are fiction writers as well. Joyce Carol Oates has written some wonderful stuff. Um, you know, honestly, there are just so many amazing writers out there that uh, I'll never come close to reading all the stuff that I could read and would thoroughly enjoy and could learn from.
0: No, it's kind of funny. I probably buy six books for every book I get through, right? (laughs) (laughs) That happens. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've got, I've got. Actually, I've got several of yours. I, I I was double checked when I was doing research. But you know, it's also funny too because I love used bookstores, just like I love um, old record and DVD places. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I'm always kind of uh, scrounging around for uh, for neat stuff there and you know, e- even though, you know, you say you've only kind of really drilled in in the last seven or eight years, you know, you've written, I don't know, 25 books, give or take.
1: Yeah, I think it's 19 or 20 with, with real publishers and, and several more, uh, that I've self-published. So yeah.
0: Yeah. So, but, right. yeah. So quite a few. And I was kind of curious, um, cause I love talking to, to authors. Did you have any, you know, editor or publisher that kind of jumps out that was kind of particularly impactful on your development as a writer?
1: Well, you know, for so many years, I wrote for Frank Amato Publications, um, and my my first book was with Nick Lyons, and, which has sort of become Skyhorse. That was clear back in 89, and uh, then after that, I did a whole long string of books for Frank Amato Publications, and that's, that's where I really developed and got, you know, whatever name i developed, that's how I developed it. And now I've been, they've kind of backed off of doing books, and I've... Uh, about that time, I'd always talked with Stackpole, so I've been publishing with Stackpole. Um, I mean, really, my formative years as a—trying to think of the word for it We'll call it how-to, uh, how-to writer of fly fishing stuff would be with Amato. I would have to say.
0: Got it, and so was kind of Frank, the editor, or were there other people at Amato that kind of worked with you on your
1: books? Oh, it, it varied. I worked with different people who who did the you know. Copy editing, and work with them, and that's kind of always the way it is. Uh, sometimes you don't even know who it is, but Amato was such a small—it's <clears throat> it, a family-run company, it, it, a small publisher that you—you know—you <laughs> knew everything. So I—I I always knew who was editing, and and it would usually be a fairly personal thing. We would talk on the phone, all that instead of being sort of some of the big. Publishers, they, they keep you sort of distant and they don't let you know who is on the other end, and you, you only communicate through, uh, through drafts of the manuscript.
0: Yeah, interesting, you know, because I can remember I've been a long time subscriber to Fly Fishing and Fly Tying Journal, and I can remember kind of back in the old, old days, I guess, there would be the catalog for the books. Um, and I can even remember, I think when I first got my subscription, I think if you got a multi-year subscription, you got to pick like two or three. So, um, wow. I, I know that was, I think that really, really big, you know, that fly tying encyclopedia that they published. Um, it was huge. Like a oh, coffee. reference. Yeah. It was like a coffee table size book. I think I literally got that, um, for subscribing.
1: Oh wow! Yeah, yeah that's a hundred dollar book.
0: Yeah, so you know, kind of good stuff. Um, but uh, it's really interesting, and I'm always curious too. I always like to to ask um, creative people. You know, in, in terms of writing, do you like to write a little bit every day, or do you kind of write in spurts around assignments, or how do you like to do it?
1: Um, I'm always have been. <laughs> this would shock my teachers all the way through high school because I was I was. A Poor student and and a terrible studier, which is why I was a poor student. Um, they would they would just be shocked to hear this. But I'm I'm actually really, uh, really I'm quite organized as as a writer and a producer of things and of projects. And uh, I get up in the morning and I have a whole process that I follow at least five days a week, typically uh, sometimes six, uh, where I get up wake up by looking at the internet, but for a limited period of time, maybe 10, 15 minutes, and then uh, look, up, look up email, that kind of thing. Then I write, and sometimes I go an hour and a half, two hours, I think. I just have no idea how long it is. And then I fix breakfast, I get breakfast going, and then I go back and write till breakfast is ready, and then I eat breakfast, and then I go back to writing for another maybe hour or so. Somewhere around three, three and a half hours, maybe four at the most, I can really write. Because there are just there are so many, uh, uh, so many of these connections going on in writing, how this word plays off of this word three sentences later, both in the sound of the word, well, in the sound of the word, in the meaning of the word, uh, do I want to use a different word or do I want to repeat the word for an effect? I mean, are just so much going on in a piece of writing and, and I'm trying to do my best. <laughs> and so, uh. <clears throat> three hours after that, I just I just stare at the words, and I can't write anything worth a darn. And so I can still write some things. I can rough things out. I can get ideas. I can work on other things. I can tie some flies, you know. Uh, I can do some business. But uh, for me, three to, three to four hours is about the max to really, truly polish and write.
0: Right. And so at the end of that three or four hours, you know, just to give folks an idea, you know, and I know it changes a lot, but, you know, how many words does that kind of translate into that, that uh, workmen like for lack of a better word?
1: Well, that's a really good question, and it's it's also a very difficult one for me to answer. Um, you know, I think everybody who writes or, or creates any kind of art has their own character, their own way of doing it that works for them. But what I can tell you is that for me, there are days that I'll spend an hour and a half on, a, on something, on an essay, let's say, and I will end up with fewer words than I started with because I don't like this and I don't like that and I pull this and I pull that and I rewrite them and rewrite them and then take them out. And the, the thing is that the first day I start a new essay, I started one this morning as a matter of fact, I'll start working through it and I'll put down some words, but they're not the final words. So I don't, you know, how do you count those exactly? Um, and then later in the process, sometimes it's I really get stuck, and it's just there's a tangle, and I gotta deal with it. And I just keep working on it. Maybe I eventually uh, do the best I can, and then put a note there. And the next day, when I go back to that piece, I start over in the same spot. <laughs> so it's really hard to say how many words a day. Now I did have an assignment uh, about two years ago. A book came out um, that I wrote and did. Did the book with Carol, uh, my wife, who's a photographer and illustrator, and it was a big project. It's a thick little book. Um, it's called 365 Fly Fishing Tips for Trout, Bass, and Panfish, and I had to figure out to be early, plenty early on the book, because you don't you don't want to write a book and end up on the finishing the day you turn it in. Otherwise, something's going to go wrong. You're going to get the flu or The book isn't going to go as smoothly as it was supposed to go or something's going to happen. So you've got to have it done months early, really. And uh, so I figured that out, did the math, and I needed to get this many polished words out a day. And it's not the same kind of polish because I wasn't writing essays. I was writing uh, exposition. Is that the right word? Now I can't think for some reason, but I think it's exposition writing. That one doesn't sound right. Anyway, how to writing. okay? You know, clarity is critical. You want the words to, you want everything to be rock solid grammatically. Those are the main thing. Expository writing. That's the word I was trying to find. And so I could do that and get out 500 words a day. And I did that consistently um, through that period of time, five or six days a week. And I made it well before deadline. But on the other hand, that's not, it wasn't literary writing. I wasn't, the, the pressure wasn't to be creative. It was to be clear and to be solid grammatical.
0: Got it. And do you prefer to do literary writing or do you prefer to do educational writing?
1: Well, you know, the, the emphasis for the last eight years has been on literary writing for me. So that's what I do first in the morning because it's the most demanding. So I do that first, but you know, I just, I've written so many how to books, (laughs) as you know, and, uh, I, actually really enjoy it. I mean, you know, when I write a how-to, like that tips book, for example, man, I was collecting tips all over the place. So so it was exciting because I was writing down these tips and then throwing them out. Well, that's a tip. It's valid, but it's not that good, you know, until I had almost 400 tips uh, that were really good tips. And that's an exciting process to me, is, is chasing that stuff down. And, and so when I do a book about something, I do so much research and exploring and testing you know, I tested all those tips to death to make sure to figure them out how to express them best, how they work, you know, the, the mechanics of them and all that, when they work, when they don't work with the, you know, all the, all the nuances. And so, um, I enjoy both. I guess that's a simple answer is I, I still enjoy the, the expository writing and, uh, I enjoy the literary writing, although my emphasis is a little more these days on the literary writing, but I, I haven't, uh, you know, when I do the expository writing, I give it everything I've
0: got. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, as we mentioned, you know, you've got 25 books, give or take, uh, over your career, uh, which is over 30 years. I just was doing the math in my head and I was always, I'm always kind of curious too, when I talk to, to authors and artists, you know, what did you, what have you learned about yourself on that
1: journey? You know, I, that's a good question. Uh, it's a good question. I'm trying to think of a good answer. I mean, I, I uh, you know, you're know, you going to change in 30-plus years. Absolutely. Because <laughs> my first article came out in 84. So you know, I don't know what that comes out to. That's going on 40 years. But um, I learned discipline. Definitely learned that because you, you work with the magazines. Actually, you work with the magazines or the publishers, either one. And Frank, Frank Amato was real flexible with the books. You could, you know, book when it, he wanted you to do it right. So you, you would set a deadline, but you would both agree that you had some time on that. Uh, if you were over, just let him know, because he didn't set anything in stone. He kept flexible. The bigger publishers can't do that. They have so many things to juggle. They have to be on on schedule, so you agree on a deadline, and then you darn well to meet that deadline it's just it's live or die it's it's uh, it's your reputation on the line and it also is just it's only fair because so many people are depending on you uh and it's the same thing in the magazine business the magazine business is always like that and if you say that i can i'm going to hand it in on may 1st you hand it in a week before may 1st and it's done and it's ready to go and you don't make excuses and i think I, I think I, I've done an estimate on that, and I think I published probably 350 magazine articles, and uh, I think I messed up maybe twice, and I just apologized up and down, swore I'd never do it again, never did it again. It was some misunderstanding, it was some dumb thing, and it was my fault, and I wasn't going to fool around and pretend it wasn't. Um, but out of 350, I think that's you know, that's pretty good. That's way under percent, under one percent. But, um, yeah, I had to learn discipline, and I had already kind of learned discipline anyway. And uh, that certainly was a change. And also, there was another thing, too. I I learned to promote myself. And uh, Lefty Craig kind of helped me with that very early on, and it was a real blessing for me. And he basically, we just talked about all the things I could do to promote myself, and he said, if you don't do (laughs) them, your name's not really going to get out there much, and and it's going to be really tough to make a living in this business. So there were a bunch of things on the list, and some scared the heck out of me. But I just gave myself some time, and I came around to it, and I decided, okay, I'm making a commitment here. And I did everything on the list. And the funny thing is that some of the things that were on the list that kind of scared me, I ended up liking the most. So that's, I'd say all that adds up to a pretty significant
0: discovery. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you, you have the benefit of having a long career in the industry. You know, what are your thoughts on kind of how the writing business has changed over your career? Oh, Lord.
1: Tremendously, it has changed. Um, I tell you, back in when my, some of my first books came out, it was about the time that what what many people call in this business, the movie, A River Runs Through It came out in theaters, and it just... The effect it had on people was crazy, and uh, they were going to walk, I, I heard stories of walking straight from the theater to a fly shop, even though they'd never fly-fished or they had given it up, you know. I mean, just the boom in fly-fishing was insane. And then, wouldn't you know, fly-tying, made clear and simple, comes out right after the movie, not too long after the movie, and not only did fly-fishing explode, but so did fly-tying, and it just, it was nuts. I mean, my I was I was seeing my book in Costco, I was seeing my book at the airport in, the, in those little shops that carry a few books. I was seeing it in the front window, you know, of those little shops. I, was, I mean, it was nuts. And, and it was a, a little taste, a miniature taste of what real celebrity is like because I was getting uh, people at the bank, you know, the, my bank teller or the guy next to me in line or something, my new doctor. They all knew who I was. It was crazy. I'd go to a restaurant, and the waiter'd go, "Wait a minute, aren't you?" <laughs> and I just—it was kind of funny in a way. And it wasn't. It was partly because a a lot of it was because of luck, but it was partly because of what well, you know, all the stuff I did to promote myself. I was already doing that, and uh, and it was because fly fishing had just absolutely exploded. I'm sure there were a lot of people who would get recognized too. It wasn't just me, but but uh, fly fishing books were just hot, hot, and bookstores. I had bookstore owners tell me, uh, you know, I can't get enough fly fishing books in here. They just go flying out. As soon as I put them on the shelves, they're up at the front desk and somebody's buying them. But that was the 90s. And then the the big change came when the internet took off, which I would say was probably the late 90s, wouldn't you say?
0: That's probably about right.
1: When it really got going and you didn't have to sit there for a half hour waiting for (laughs) what you put in to come up. Um, When it really got going, then people could you know, expository stuff, how-to stuff really changed because people could go online and they could find five different ways to tie a Royal Coachman or, or, and then YouTube came out and then they could find 12 more. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's life. It's The horse and buggy went through the same thing. <laughs> you don't see a lot of those anymore. But uh, fly fishing books and fly time books, they still sell. People still buy them, that's for sure. And, um, they have to be really focused and they have to be, good. You can't make a mediocre book and expect it to have pretty good sales. It's going to, it's going to die. It has to be a real good book. And it has to be, the information has to be real good. And, uh, it's, it's just a much more competitive market and the sales are way down from what they were, even for the best, even for the top selling books, they're, they're way down from what they were back then.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, that whole, um, you know, competition with free content, it seems to have really uh, made it incredibly difficult to make a living as an outdoor writer.
1: Yep. Yeah. That's really true. And the magazines are, you know, I hope they stay around some of them, but um, I think the literary ones like Gray's and The Drake and uh, Life is Journal, I think they'll be around, but the ones that are how-to have a challenge. And a couple of them have, big ones have gone in the last two, three years.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, if someone wanted to become an outdoor writer today, what advice would you give them?
1: Uh, You know, I guess I would say diversify because I don't think, I don't, I don't see how you can make a living just being an outdoor writer now, at least a fly fishing writer. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but that's, I've been doing this a long time and that's my sense. I mean, it depends on what you call living. If you, you know, if you inherited a little piece of property and you have a pup tent and you're satisfied with that, well, yeah, maybe you can do it. But, you know, it's, it's really tough. I I made a good living for what I call a good living. I certainly wasn't wealthy, but I made a good living for a significant amount of time. And, uh, now I'm lucky enough that I was going during that time because enough people know my name that I, I get quite a few, uh, speaking engagements. And it's easy for me to get an article published if I want, or, uh, or write another book, um, and to teach, but uh, I would say more than ever, if you want to make a decent living as a fly fishing writer, uh, you're going to have to do a whole lot of things. You're going to have to teach, maybe, maybe guide or work in a fly shop or, or something, or have a whole different job in a whole different uh, area, maybe, I don't know, be whatever. A golf pro or a CPA or a, or a rodeo clown or something. <laughs>
0: there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we talked about it uh, a little bit earlier in the interview, but, you know, Fly Tying Made Clear and Simple is, you know, it's his 30th anniversary. And, you know, middle of April, it's getting ready to be re-released by Stackpole. And I was really kind of curious, you know, if you could tell us a little bit about how the book originally came to be.
1: Yeah, that was my, not my first book, but it was my first fly-tying book, and I believe it was the first all-color fly-tying book, which is <laughs> hard to believe now because there have been so many since. But, um, yeah, that thing just went mad. As I was telling you, that's the one that I was seeing everywhere. And uh, what what I did for that book, I, you know, I had it in my head, which I was probably right uh, to take it that way, but I thought, I've got this contract for this book, and if, I don't, if it isn't a really good book, maybe I'll never get another contract. So, so what I want to do for a career, I need to make this book the best it can possibly be. And I just worked on that book. That was all I did. I mean, I was still a part-time musician, but just part-time, and so I was doing that. But otherwise, I was working on that book every day, uh, figuring out uh, how to make the flies in the book, um, the, the instruction, the clearest it could be. And make the flies the easiest to tie that I could make them for my readers. And so I actually got a couple of guys. I picked up a couple of guys, uh, both musicians. One I worked for, the other I worked with. One is a keyboard player, the other a trumpet player. They both had the last name of Davis, and they're both named in there. And neither of them, they would tell you this themselves. Neither of them was a gifted fly tire, and that's exactly what I wanted. No experience, no natural gift. (laughs) And with only words, I went through every fly with one guy, took copious notes. And I would try to describe it, say, well, okay, what if I describe it this way? Does that make sense? Oh, uh, no, I still don't understand. So I'd try saying it another way. And then, you know, bingo, i get it. Something would click, and they would go, oh, I see what I'm supposed to do. They would do it. I would take my notes. Um, then we'd go through the fly. They'd go home. The next guy would come over the next day or a couple of days. And we'd work together, and I would throw up my notes, and I'd test them out on him, and he'd go, No, I don't understand that. And I'd go, Well, he did. And so we'd, I'd try changing them a little bit, and then he'd get it, and I'd change my notes. I'd add something new in, all handwritten notes back then. And, uh, I did that through all the flies in the book, so that even if, so I figured if I could get the instructions so clear that without the photos, people, and without seeing me do it, somebody could tie these flies you know, with that kind of, with no experience, that the book would work. And then I also had a list of things to do if you're having trouble. So after each step in the time, you, you do, you know, for example, you, you dub. But maybe you have trouble dubbing. There's a little section called Problems, Solutions, and Suggestions. And there will be a numbered list that will say, okay, if that didn't work, try this, try uh, this, try this. These are all things I tested with these guys and tested myself afterward. And so there are all these ways to back out of the pro- a problem if you run into one. I just wanted it so that people couldn't go wrong. And so it, it was a tremendous... To do that, book. it's only 80 pages, but it's full of color photos. It's full of those problems, solutions, suggestions, sections. And uh, it is full of it is full of photos and captions and instruction. And, uh, you know, I, I guess... What I would say is, I did my best. I can always say I did my best. I think I'm a much better writer now than I was then, but I worked very hard then to make the writing clear and understandable, and I think I think that comes across. And uh, it just it was very exciting, very challenging uh, book for me to do, and uh, I I really loved it. It was exhausting, but I, I did it, and so I also was careful. I thought, you know, I'm gonna. I'm going to hope that this book is around for a long time. I have no idea it would be around for 30 years, but I was very careful to pick fly patterns in the book that would remain, if not popular, would remain uh, really useful, practical ones. And I believe I did that. I mean, the Griffiths Nat is in there. It's never lost its popularity, not even a shade. I still think that one of the best flies around is the uh, light Cahill parachute, and that's in there. The gold hair is in there. That's still popular as can be after 30 years. So is the pheasant tail nymph. So is the woolly bugger. So I was really careful to winnow down the flies. But then I also, that's a long answer to a short question, but I'm about done. (laughs) But I really had to think also about which flies are going to be the best to demonstrate different fly tying techniques and to work progressively from no experience and then build on your experience from each fly as you move on to the next fly. So it was quite a challenge to pick out the flies and do the whole thing, but uh, I'm glad I did it the way I did it.
0: Yeah. It's very neat too. Cause I mean, to your point, there's a progression, but I mean, they're nymphs, they're classic dries. There's some very classic streamer patterns, which, you know, streamers now mean almost something completely different. Um, yeah. And then they're, they're, I don't know, they're probably what four to six plates of flies in the back for people to kind of grow into when they're done with the book.
1: Yeah, I didn't want them to, you know, it makes sense to me to have a, a selection of flies at the back that, that, uh, where the dressings are provided or what a lot of people call patterns and some people call recipes, which always feels a little funny to me, but anyway. Yeah, along with a good picture of the, of the fly so that they can use the skills they have and then they have all these other flies that are pretty closely related to the flies that they just learned to tie and so they can tie a whole lot more than just the flies that are
0: step by step. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting too, because, you know, uh, I've got a review copy of the new book uh, inside baseball. Um, and it's the, you know, the legend of the top says sold over 150,000 copies. And I know there've probably been 25 or 26 uh, printings of the original copy. You know, there've been a lot of tying books um, over the years. You know, Skip, what do you attribute the popularity and the staying power of clear and simple to?
1: You know, honestly, I, I I'd have to say that it's pretty much everything I just said. I think it I think it lives up to its title. And uh, you know, I remember uh, a wonderful essay writer, um, and and my memory is a very unreliable, strange thing. Uh, I'm trying to think of his name, John. Darn it! But he said in in one of his books that was a book on writing that he writes and rewrites and works on a book until it's the best he can make. it. Somebody else may be able to write it better, but, uh, he's done it the best he can. And that's when he stops. And I think that's what I tried to do. And I think, um, because somebody, maybe somebody could have written it better. Um, there certainly were better writers around back then, but I don't know if there were better writers who were also, uh, had been tying flies since they were, <laughs> you know, pre and, and had been, uh, um, basically uh, fanatical about it for, the, for most of that time. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think, I think it's just that the book is, is, is pretty much, I hope, as I wanted it to be, and that is really easy to follow, uh, doesn't leave you hanging, helps you when you're in trouble. I think that's probably what has made the book successful.
0: Yeah. It's interesting too, because I know you you had a career as a professional tire. Did that help you or hurt you in the sense of, you know, there was stuff that you internalized that you didn't even kind of remember to tell people. And I know you had that troubleshooting process with your two musician friends, but, you know, was that a helpful thing for you or did it actually kind of make it harder for you to write clear and simple?
1: No, I don't. Commercial tying, I don't think harmed, (laughs) harmed my instructional abilities you know, I, I think the thing about, um, commercial tying is you, you start to, uh, you, at least for me, and I think, and I, I know one other commercial tire I would say is about, but you start to lose touch with reality. I mean, it's, you're tying so many flies. You walk in, I used to tie for Kaufman Streamborn, which was maybe the biggest outfit in the world as far as, uh, a mail order operation. It's gone now, but, um, it was huge. And, I used to tie for them, and I'd walk in, and they'd give me an order for fifty of, uh, like, say, zonkers size eight, 50 dozen or a hundred dozen. And I'll, I'll tell you, you get really good at tying size eight zonkers after about the first three dozen. But uh, I don't think it hurt me, and it it taught me things. But I, if I if I had done that from then up till now full time, I would need a lot of therapy. It's really weird. Thing to do for a living and it's really tough on your brain and your psyche um, no I don't so I know I don't think it hurt um, you are absolutely right that's one of the hardest things about instruction for people who have done something for a long time I believe I believe that is true is to not forget what it's like to not know what the heck you're doing to start out just completely lost and when I write books for beginners which quite a few of mine are I um, You know, the the survival guide for beginning fly anglers is truly for beginning fly fishers. And uh, same thing with Clear and Simple. That is a huge um, goal of mine is to tap into that beginner thing. In fact, when I did uh, the the book for beginning fly fishers, survival guide, I also had a, a I'll call him a test subject instead of a guinea pig, but I, a guy who had never fly-fished, and I, I did the whole same thing I did with Clarence and Simple, and I took him through the book, step-by-step, step, explaining things, casting, tying knots, the whole thing without actually doing it or showing him or letting him look at pictures. And that, I think, is the best thing I could have done. It tuned me in so well to what a beginner, to what's their, what their mind is doing, what, what, what their... Uh, what they're feeling and what they're going through. And that's such a help in writing something, how to stuff because oh, it's so easy to think everybody knows how to tie a whip finish or everybody knows how to make the pinch or everybody knows what a back cast is. You you can't do that if you're writing for newcomers.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of funny because I've taught some fly tying classes and things generally come to a screeching halt at the whip finish. <laughs> So oh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and it's interesting too because I can tell from our conversation that you really like to revise extensively. Um, and I was really kind of curious how you resisted the urge to focus that kind of um penchant for revision uh on a new edition of Clear and Simple, you know, in light of kind of new materials and all sorts of stuff that have happened in the last 30 years.
1: Yeah, we we really debated that. Um, I mean, my, my publisher and I, um, because there were two aspects. One is I am a better writer, and I could improve the book. I could, I could not really many of those flies need updating, especially the ones that are actually tied step by step. Uh, you know, as I say, I mean, it doesn't tail <laughs> woolly bugger, <laughs> but, um, but I could improve it, but at the same time, you know the other side of that was that it was so well established, as you say, it it sold, it sold ridiculous number of copies, and people loved it the way it was. I mean, it was it was a crazy seller right up until the Amato decided that you know they were going to do other things. But uh, and so kind of the old why change it? You know, why if it isn't broke broken, why fix it? And uh, so we debated about that we decide okay let's let's call it the classic and they wanted to change the cover which i think it's kind of a cool cover um we sure worked hard at that one carol and i when we took the photo because she's a pro photo photographer as i mentioned but um so they changed the cover to sort of suit their style but right on there we agreed they needed to put the classic original and it is that's exactly what it is and that's that was the thinking that was behind doing that
0: And we mentioned before we started recording that, you know, the original um, was spiral bound, and even though this edition is not the way that it's, the binding works, it will behave just like a spiral bound book.
1: Yeah, um, I would have liked to have seen that on the cover, but but their philosophy, which I can understand from an artistic perspective, was you can get a cover cluttered with stuff, and and it just loses its, its its drains a little bit of the force of the of the artistic quality of the cover. And so, that's fine. But it, I wanted to it write on there, lay flat binding, which means that the pages are attached to a backing, which is separate from the spine of the cover. And so if you do lay it flat, that flexible uh, backing just bends and the pages can lay flat. So, they could, you can literally lay the book out open flat and it won't harm it, but, um, it doesn't say that you just kind of have to figure that out on your own or have to have listen to
0: this interview. There you go. And, uh, talking about tying stuff, you know, you're a professional tire. You've written a lot of educational books, uh, for us, mere mortal, uh, fly tires. Um, you know, Skip, what are three tips that you would, uh, you could share with us to help us up our game at the vice?
1: Okay, well, I'm pretty mortal too. If I'm tying a fly in a hurry, it can be pretty ugly. If I'm tying a fly fast to get out out the door and catch some fish, <laughs> I can I can get pretty sloppy. But um, I have taught and a, a ton and written ton. Uh, the the first thing I would say, and I have asked a lot of people who have also written fly tying books and articles and who teach fly tying, they almost always say the same thing. I say I I ask them, what's the first thing, the most important thing you would tell fly tires, if uh, you had to tell them one thing that would improve their tying, and they say it different ways. They'll say, uh, leave room for the head, don't crowd the head, you know. Um, it's basically, you know, most of our flies, especially trout flies, have a tapered thread head, and if you don't leave a space for that, typically it's going to be about the length of the hook's eye, behind the eye, it can have, it can have a layer of thread on it, but basically no materials on it if you don't leave that space then building the head without having the space to do it is going to be slow sloppy the head is going to be ugly but even more important the head is going to be unstable it's it's likely to fall apart and fail and the fly is going to unravel so you leave room for the head that's all you have to do and then when you go to make the head you've got a space to do it it's going to be neater quicker uh stronger and faster which I guess quicker and faster the same. But anyway, it's going to be better in, in every, every way. And so that's the first one. Um, I, I have noticed that beginning fly tires especially, they are uh, kind of um, too casual about proportions. And if you don't mind, I'll give a little plug to something, but it's something free. Is that okay? 100%. Okay. Um, on our website, and you just put Skip Morris fly tying into Google and it'll come up. There is a free fly proportion chart, and all you have to do is go in on the opening page, click on it, and you can print out all you want. I spent months on that thing. It's free. And I did it because people need that, because uh, proportions on a fly are really important. They can mess up the way it rests on the water whether it, so it doesn't look like the insect it's supposed to look like, the way it moves in the water, whether it hooks fish or not or holds them or not. Um, Just all kinds of problems, and this, I think, is especially true, probably more than any other kind of fly, it's true of trout flies, so I made up this fly proportion chart, and so go get that, and then pay real close attention to it. I I researched the heck out of that, but um, my point here is that um, be circumspect about proportions in your flies, because they really are important. I mean, don't be neurotic about it, but just... Measure using your scissors like calipers, your scissor blades, and then often double check so that you've got the tail right length, the legs the right length, the abdomen the right length, you know, the wings in the right location, that kind of stuff. That's all what we call proportions, and it's it really does matter. Uh, what would be the third thing? You know, there are so many things. When I teach flight timing, mean, there are just so many things I, I can tell people, <laughs> Um it's hard to pick which one. I guess I would say learn the pinch because the, the pinch is, um, I wish I had come up with that title, but Dick Tallure, I think, was the first one who used it. He used it just before I came up with it on my own, but I was working on clear and simple and I opened a book of his and there was the term, the pinch, and I went, on it. So it's not my original title but for or name for this technique, but it, it's a way of Tying a material, binding it onto a hook so that it binds neatly into place and does not keep rolling around the hook, which used to drive me nuts before I dis- discovered for myself the pinch. I-, I invented it, but it had already been invented. So, um, But it's a great technique. Uh, you're going to use it all the time. Get good at the
0: pinch. Yeah, absolutely. You know, It's interesting, too, about proportions because I think – you know, two things I've noticed one, there are a lot more hooks than there used to be. Right. Oh, uh, yeah. So all those tricks that we learned, you know, 15 or 20 years ago about, you know, the length of the shank is roughly where the barb is. Some of that doesn't really apply, particularly with barbless hooks, um, you know, anymore, but also too, I mean, I, I find, and you probably find this too, sometimes people are a little casual, uh, with uh, nomenclature and it makes it very difficult to, uh, Actually, get the proportions correct. If you read what they wrote when they were telling you how to tie the fly.
1: Oh yeah. Um, Well, yeah. That's one of the tricky things about about writing a an article or a book is you you have you have to carefully define a term if it's especially if it's a well if it's a term you're going to use and it's it's important then you have to be careful about defining it and then you have to be consistent about how you refer to that how you, you you know in using that name and not using a different term for the same thing, because now the 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 reader has got it in his head or her head that this is what you mean when you say the pinch, but if you call it something else later on, yeah, you just mess them up. They go, well, is that the pinch maybe, or is he talking about something else? I don't know. Um, one of the best things that happened to me as a, as a writer of how-to books was to learn uh, in the through the how-to books of my time. And some of those went way back, you know. I mean, when I was learning in the 60s, early 60s, up mostly through the 60s, when I first learned my basics um, of, of everything, fly casting, fly tying, some of the books were pretty awful. And and it would just be like they drop into a foreign language. Might as well have dropped into a foreign language for a paragraph, because I didn't know what the heck they were talking about. And and it illustrated to me what needed to be done to make a book, or an article, or just writing actually, that was clear, that made its point. It was, it was, you know, I've, I've always, I believed that for a long time. As a musician, I always felt um, because I taught at a college and uh, taught in a music store and taught and taught and wrote for a jazz guitar magazine. And anyway, one of the things I really learned for myself, and I often told my students and this is true of fly tying and everything else, uh, fly casting, is pay attention to the bad stuff. In other words, if you want to become a really good writer, read great writers, analyze them, really tear their stuff apart, spend a lot of time with them, but also read weak writers. This is nothing against those writers. I don't want to be critical, but some writers write horribly, and you learn so much, or I do, from them. And the same thing is true with flight time instruction or in music you hear somebody who's got a time time problem they're not locked into the beat and you go oh my god that's why it's so important to to nail your time you you just you feel it you see it you understand it at a much deeper level and so you're letting that poor person (laughs) you know uh suffer so that you can grow and uh that's that's unfortunate but uh, you know it's Reality, you can't go up there and tell them, "Hey, I learned something." You want me to tell you about your time? He's not going to do that. He's going to be punched in the face. So, uh, but but yeah, um, those books were so helpful to me. And I think I also had this advantage, which doesn't sound isn't going to sound like an advantage, but I have a difficult time understanding. You're not going to believe this. I have a difficult time understanding expository writing. When people <laughs> write instructional writing, it has to be really good for me to understand it so that actually has worked for me in my own writing if it's not crystal clear to me if, you know then I mean I'm the best test of, of all in a way of my writing because if I don't if it's not really clear to me then I, I'm what am I trying to say I'm trying to say that I am the easiest to mess up so I'm the best test that
0: makes sense Yeah, it does. It's funny you say that because I'm a lawyer by training. And so um, I get in trouble uh, reading uh, fly fishing and fly tying instruction books because I tend to be too technical and and analytical sometimes. And I get myself in a lot of trouble. Um, And uh, so I I get it. I I really do.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's it's just something that's been kind of a problem in our marriage sometimes because Carol will say something and I'll say, well, I don't understand what you're trying to tell me. And she go, it's clear what I just said, you know, but I I, uh, I don't understand English that well. So it helps me <laughs> to be a, a, I make the best critic in the world for my own my own uh, rewriting and polishing of my
0: writing. Yeah, very neat. And, you know, Skip, uh, as we kind of wind down this evening, do you have any other projects? I know you mentioned one of them earlier uh, in the interview, but do you have any other projects you want to share with our listeners before you go tonight?
1: Let's see. Well, I mean, I'm I'm writing. Uh, I'm I'm working now on another uh, another uh, self published ebook that I think will eventually go into uh, become a, a print on demand book. I, I've got a book that that went up a few years ago, and I just rewrote it in the last about a year ago. It's a little book called Top Twelve drive, Top Twelve Nymphs for Trout Streams. And uh, it's done really well as an ebook, So we got it on print-on-demand, and it's doing really well. Um, and so I spent another year <laughs> writing a, a, a similar book, sort of a sequel, and it's Top 12 Dry, dry Flies for Trout streams. except that it's really floating flies because it has a lot of emergers, dry flies. But it takes you fly-by-fly fly, take, through these 12 flies I very carefully picked out, flies you could get in almost any fly shop. And then I provide the dressings if you want to tie them, and then I talk a little bit about the history of the fly, but mostly it's real brass tacks. I, to use a cliche, it's a, it's it's about the top 12 nymphs and the top 12 dries, which will be out in the next six months or so, I would expect. Um, very to the point, you know, here's what this fly does, here's how it works in conjunction with these other flies to fill a niche, and uh, here's... What it, where you fish it, when you fish it, why you fish it, which is part of the title, actually. When I can't remember the order, but it's like when, where, and how to fish them. Uh, and then it, it goes through situations, uh, several situations, and it says, okay, this situation one, this is happening, what fly would you fish and how would you fish it? There's also illustrations in there on, how to, on different techniques for fishing the flies. Really, for a little book, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty complete, but it's very, very practical. It's not a book with a bunch of stories in it and so forth. It, it gets right to the point, very simple, very straightforward. But you should be able to get those 12 flies, go out and start catching even some pretty smart fish because it's got really everything you need, I think. And that, So that's, that's a project. The, uh, that's, that's out. And then we're soon going to have the top 12 dry flies out. And other than that, there's the, uh, the writing clinic that I'm doing this weekend. We've still got one space available. Uh, that's been fun it's very intense uh, we cover a lot of stuff but it's a lot of fun too and I, I don't pick at people I'm not there to judge them I'm there to uh, share with them and to have fun with them and to try to teach them and encourage them so that's the attitude I take it's, it takes about four hours to get through everything but we take a break and it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a kick so if anybody's interested they can go to my website again Skip Morris fly tying and uh, take a look and see if they're interested
0: and I'll drop that in the show notes, too. And, you know, Skip, uh, when the book comes out in the middle of April, you know, where where can folks find it?
1: Um, well, I'm sure it'll be on Amazon. I hope it'll be in their local fly shop and their local bookstore. Um, but certainly they can order it through Amazon or uh, I assume Barnes & Noble will carry it. they carried a lot of my books over the years. And uh, pretty much anywhere they want to go and get it uh, that that are that fly tying books are carried i would imagine that it'll be there uh, you know that's kind of up to the publisher and, and their process this is uh, as you said this is a big big publisher now they are owned by a big conglomerate and they have a lot of horsepower so i imagine it'll be a lot of places
0: yeah, and are you going to be doing like for example uh signed copies through your website or are people are just going to have to find you on the show circuit to get a signed copy
1: yeah on the show circuit would be the way to go um Because, yeah, we don't sell them directly, and in fact, I'm glad you mentioned that, because the book will be available, I assume, because they carry all my other books, through the mail-order house, uh, the fly shop in Redding, California, and the other one is Feathercraft Fly Fishing in St. Louis, Missouri, so I assume they will both carry it, because they carry all my other books. And, uh, so that would be a great place to go. Those are, those are two real reputable places. I'm very happy to be associated
0: with them. Yeah. hundred percent. You got it. You're covered on both coasts and, uh, you know, Skip, you mentioned your website, but you want to kind of share that one more time. And, you know, if you've got any kind of favorite flavors of social media, like Facebook, if you want to kind of share those with folks, uh, so folks can keep up with your fishing and your riding adventures, that'd be great.
1: Sure. Um, I do have a Facebook page, and I don't uh, I don't get too involved in it, but I'm always happy to bring people in who uh, aren't ranting too much, you know. <laughs> Some people, I, you know, I don't want to get too much into that. But, um, but people who like to fly fish and uh, aren't ranting all the time, <laughs> I accept them as friends. And then uh, I've been doing a thing, I don't know how much longer I'll do it, but it's called Thursday third Thursday shorts and I write a real short essay and put it up a third Thursday of every month. And I usually get quite a few people commenting on it and it gets pretty fun because they, they share their opinions and their experiences and we all do. And, uh, so that's kind of a kick. Uh, I'm looking at, I'm trying to think of Instagram. Is it Instagram? I think I, I haven't done that yet. And, uh, I might do that, but anyway, I'm definitely on Facebook and there is my website, which has got pretty much everything that's me going on there. Um, uh, And if you just go to Google and put in Skip Morris fly tying, it will come up it's got, it lists all my books and, uh, it it has a bunch of some articles on there and stuff that's new and stuff that's going on. So there you go.
0: There you go. And I'll drop all that stuff in the show notes, Skip. Okay, great. Perfect. Well, listen, Skip, I really appreciate you taking some time out of your evening to talk to me.
1: My pleasure. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much.
0: Take care. You too. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a rating and review in the podcast of your choice. And if you're in the Boston area this weekend, please swing by the Norvice booth at the Fly Fishing Show and say hello. Tight lines, everybody.